Hi, I'm Matt Kane, Editor-in-Chief of Attitude, back with another frank, funny and ever so slightly salacious episode of Attitude Heroes. My guest today is the actor, screenwriter, novelist and comedian Mark Gatiss. Attitude Heroes is sponsored by The Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. So, where to start when introducing my guest today? Over the last 20 years, Mark Gatiss has shaped some of the biggest UK TV dramas and comedies, written novels and acted in dozens of film, theatre and radio roles. Having introduced us to the surreal inhabitants of Royston Vesey in the cult comedy series The League of Gentlemen, he went on to write and perform in primetime family shows like Doctor Who and Sherlock. Along the way, he's popped up in everything from Spaced and Being Human to Dad's Army, Wolf Hall and Game of Thrones. Recently, he curated and directed BBC Four's eight-part series Queers, which marked the 50th anniversary of the Sexual Offences Act and featured monologues by actors like Ben Whishaw and Alan Cumming. When I met him at his home in North London recently, he told me about his experience of coming out. My mum one night just asked me, she literally said, you have a lot of friends who are girls, but they never seem to be your girlfriends. Beat. (laughs) Are you not interested in girls? And I went, no. And that was it. About his earliest gay feelings. I think I knew from when I was about four, I remember having massive crushes on, on men. Uh, Stuart Damon off The Champions and the dark one off Follyfoot. You'll see I have a very good taste. And about looking back at homosexuality in the past. There were two guys, one in his 70s, one in his 80s. The older one was an ex-headmaster who had lived a completely closeted life. The other guy, he said to me, you know, a lot of people say it was really hard. We just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> and it was like the two sides of this amazing experience. Again, you, you mustn't think that the past is all one way because it absolutely isn't. So here he is, the truly talented Mark Gatiss. Mark, thank you for having us in your lovely home in North London. Thank you very much. It's a Georgian home, you were saying. It is, yes. Not a Barrett home. <laughs> I'm slightly disappointed the dog isn't here. I He'll be, uh, he will barge in at some stage and then we'll have to stop recording. That's, that's how these things go. In the meantime, while we wait for the dog, um, congratulations on Queers, which is currently broadcasting on the BBC. You wrote the, the first episode. You've produced, directed, curated the whole thing. Yes. Um, what I've seen so far is brilliant. Thank you. Well, it's been a, a joyous experience. I mean, I get emails sort of asking me if I'll do this, that and the other, and and sometimes they're very, you know, very attractive, exciting things, other times they're not. But I absolutely bit their, their hand off when they... Even the suggestion of this, is, it, it was sort of couched in, would you be vaguely interested? And I just went, I, absolutely, <laughs> I will move heaven and earth. I just got terribly excited straight away. First of all, because... Uh, I love monologues as a as a form. I'm a huge fan of Alan Bennett, and 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 he's been a great influence on me. And and I love Talking Heads. So I was very excited about that, about the chance to mark the '67 uh, act and the anniversary of that, and also the chance to to get new writers onto television. So that the whole combination of things uh, was was very attractive to me. Well, it's interesting as well that you mentioned the 1967 anniversary. Um, to what extent was it a factor that you wanted to kind of, you know, to educate younger gay viewers about their history? Because it struck me when I've watched some of the stories so far that, you know, these lives have just, you know, gone undocumented for the for the most part. Well, it's it's, it's a twofold thing. Partly, I mean, it's very interesting. Um, Matt Holbrook's book Queer London was a, was a fantastic resource for me and and in fact that's where I kind of found the story for for my one the Ben uh, Wishaw character yeah. um, it was just sort of and, and most of the stuff in there is from police reports now the, the weird double edged 
uh, weapon of, of of it all is that if if there hadn't been uh, such sort of vicious legislation, these lives would have vanished completely. So there's a strange thing going on there. You actually think, wow, um, you know, if it wasn't for that particular arrest that night, this whole sort of subculture might have totally disappeared. So there's that. And then secondly, um, it's no accident. One of them is called I Miss the War, and uh, which is the title I gave to, to um, Matt Baldwin's one, because uh, I think there's an interesting thing going on whereby, uh, and this goes for sort of, all conflict, really. The point of fighting a battle is to give the people who come after you the right to be indifferent. That's what it's about, isn't it? You actually, you can't fight fascism and then tell people what they should and shouldn't do uh, on, a, on a smaller scale, obviously, but that's what it's about. So uh, I don't want to preach and wag my finger at people who didn't grow up in the, in the 60s, 70s and 80s and say, you know, you've no idea what we went through. But it's great to be able to sort of present those things and let people know about them. And then they can take what they want from it. But it's interesting what you say, because it is, yeah, it's brilliant in some ways that young people don't have to think about the repression, that they do take for granted um, that their lives are much better in some ways because it shows how much better they are. Yeah. And it's interesting as well when you talk about the fact that there's little documentation of so many gay lives, queer lives, whatever we call them from the past, because often they wouldn't have used the word gay. But um, I always find it interesting when you're looking at figures from Hans Christian Andersen to Tchaikovsky to Michelangelo to Leonardo da Vinci. Um, they were obviously what we would now call gay, but there's still biographers and historians who argue otherwise because there's little evidence. But of course there was, because they spent all the time trying to cover it up. I find the most amazing thing in the in the uh, the brilliant uh, queer British art exhibition at yes. the Tate, which is wonderful, full of joys, and the best thing by miles still are Orton and Halliwell's defaced library books, which made me oh, laugh. I love that. I literally stood in and howled with laughter <laughs> at... Uh, Fucked by Monty, <laughs> and the library is just yeah. round here. I know, and of course the brilliant, the joy that the fact that that is now their prize exhibit. You know? <laughs> I love that the irony of that is marvelous. But but they've got no coward's dressing gown, and it says on one of the on one of the things. Um, you know, many people have have seen homoerotic themes in Coward's work. No shit. Yeah, no. And then you go, what? I but mean, they can't say. Apparently not. I know. I, I mean, that's, I, that's very interesting that, you know, as I say, in this day and age, you're not able to actually say, well, I think we can, we don't have to just infer things about Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Tchaikovsky, do we? But apparently, I mean, who's left a libel? I know, but the, I know, but the, well, there are descendants in some cases, not that far back, but there's always the thing that, um, you know, really academic biographers who would, you know, want to be beyond any doubt you know, they could say that they wouldn't have used the word gay. And it's interesting, actually, that you call this series Queers. Mm. Um, I don't know whether that was your choice or the BBC's choice, but it's something we talk about in the Attitude Office a lot because it's a word that was used as an insult, it's been reclaimed as an act of empowerment, but it's also... Um, people do use it for, as a kind of umbrella term for people in the past, like the Queer British Art Exhibition yeah. at Tate Britain. I, it was my choice, and it, it, it was difficult to find a title. It, it's, it, the word in itself has a journey, which I found fascinating. You know, they would, have, they would have used that term in 1917. That's what Ben Wishaw's character would have been called. And by the time we get to the present day, it has been reclaimed. So that's what I'm interested in, is telling those stories. Um, and it's amazing... As I say, what what the power of a word can have, you yeah. can watch that change. So, but it's but I'm also terribly aware of the fact that, um, you know, the uh, that that's a, that's both a catch-all term, the way that gay is, and also for some people a very specific term. And I, I think what 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 the argument would be about people like Michelangelo or, or Leonardo is that, of course, they wouldn't have used a word like gay, and people didn't use the word homosexual until the early twentieth century. Oh. Um, but they would have been something. We just don't know what it is. That, that, that they, I'm sure, Leonardo's pals would have all known each other. <laughs> they would have all had a certain. They would probably have girls' a, names for yeah. each other. All the usual Almost, cliches. Well, they would, wouldn't they? I'm sure they would. Or something entirely different. And yeah, that's yeah. again, if you read Matt Holbrook's book, there's an extraordinary amount of um, stuff he's discovered about things like in various working class, particularly Catholic communities. 
uh, in the tens and twenties and thirties, um, you know, there was much more tolerance of boys sleeping with each other rather than getting girls pregnant. Yeah. And you think that's va- I mean, that's vanished as a notion. The idea that a, that a, a whole sort of section of the community might be perfectly fine with boys holding hands and canoodling or even fucking each other. Um, because it was it was preferable to to having a bun in the oven. I mean, imagine that. <laughs> so going back to the word queer, how do you, as an individual, feel about it? Because I still I'm coming round to it now, actually. But for years I struggled with it, just because that was always the insult when I was growing up. Well, that's interesting. I think maybe because it wasn't. I mean, it was puff where I came from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe if if I called the series Puff, that might feel a bit... I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe I, we I need to reinvent that next. Uh, Reclaim that next. Yeah, it must stand for something. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I suppose it's because I've got used to it as the Q of LGBTQ+, plus, uh, that it feels much more of a an accepted thing. But also, um, the interesting thing about queer is um, that as well as denoting gayness, it also can um, denote a kind of outsider status, Mm. alternative. Mm. And it's interesting looking back on your work because when there hasn't been an explicitly gay theme to um, work that you've done, there's often been a queerness there, whether it's Doctor Who, obviously, The League of Gentlemen, Sherlock, that kind of... Would you agree that this yeah, is so, important? Yes, I mean, if you use it in, in its other sorts of way, then then definitely, I mean, that's something I rather like. It's, it's uh, you know, if you... I mean, if you look at it throughout the years, then I, I like the way it sort of, you know, you might say... I don't know, there's something a bit queer about that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's lovely, isn't it? I think there's something quite celebratory about it, and that's what I'd like to reclaim about it. I think I've don't told you this, but um, last Christmas I went to see um, Christmas Queens at the Troxy <laughs> with my new friend Michelle Visage uh, <laughs> and comparing. And I we, love this story already. Uh, we, were, you know, we were in this packed venue and Michelle was singing Oh Holy Night with a, I love it when she gets serious oh, and heartfelt. It was it's my favourite carol. She was singing it with a heavy cold and all the queens behind her dressed as Santa Claus and all these thousands of puffs <laughs> with, their, with their phones on, with the, with the torches on, waving around. And I started to cry. Completely unexpectedly, I started to cry because I looked about and I thought, you know, this is, this is like a cathedral of oddness. That's yeah, what it yeah, is. Yeah. It's a wonderful celebration of odd people. And I was really taken by that. And I thought, well, that to me, that is what queer means. And it is, it is a catch-all term in so many ways. But actually, as you say, if you go back to the root uh, of it being something a bit off-centre, um, then that's what I am and that's what I want to celebrate. Right, so it's interesting that you say you're ready to celebrate it, you want to celebrate it, because most of us have had a journey... Um, and have started off with an uneasy relationship with our oddness, our difference, our queerness, um, through to our gayness. And I'd love to talk to you about your journey. Because, you know, it's fine for us to sit here now like and say... Want... <laughs> um, but, you know, it's fine for us to sit here now and say we want to celebrate our queerness. But, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, would you have said that? No. I mean, I, I think I would have... Um... You know, I was always an unusual child, and I and I did, I didn't suffer in that. I just remember I quite liked being a bit odd. You know, I had like one best friend at primary school. We used to wander around the playground talking about horror films and avoiding footballs. And but then that's everyone's story, isn't it? Really, every gay every gay man's story. <laughs> well, not <laughs> quite. Now you get all those mask gays who love talking about how they fit in and they like playing yeah. football. But they're all liars. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Well, no, I, I don't know. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I'm genuinely, I, I had. I think honestly, I had like an afternoon of denial. That's that's all I ever had, and I've really never, I've never been in, never. So, well, so, public- I mean, I mean, pu- I mean, publicly, certainly, obviously, to my family, I was. I, I had to come out, but it was a, it was. I, I didn't. I, I I was lucky enough not to have that kind of struggle. I don't have those kind of demons. I just kind of accepted it, you know. So it was never an option. So when you were first starting out in the public eye, um, was it ever an option to you that you would not talk about your gayness? Honestly, not. Because I'm not... It's a lovely thing to have had some measure of success, but 
most important thing is is to be a happy person, and that's genuinely all I'm interested in. And I don't. It's just the game is not worth the candle. You know, it's just not the the idea of you know, uh, change, pretending to be something else in order to further your career and then living a miserable life. I mean, the, it's so well documented that the terrible cases... I remember reading um, uh, when Rock Hudson got married. I was just going to say yeah. Rock Hudson. It's a marvellous story when he got he got married. He was married for a year and there's all these pictures of him with this... She was a um, beautiful girl and, uh, you know, it was all manufactured and... Basically, he lived a celibate life. And then I remember seeing a documentary where one of his friends was on saying, you know, the moment the divorce was, was finalised, he, he hired a boy and, and, and his friend said he fell on him. <laughs> fell on him. Well, should I tell you what? Like, I've, like, I've... He was like he was like, like a starving, a shipwrecked <laughs> sailor, you know. And so... I've just read Armistead Maupin's memoir, which is coming out um, later this year, and he talks about his friendship with Rock Hudson and how miserable he was mm-hmm. having to hide that part of him. I mean, obviously he was in what they're called the glass closet. He was out privately to friends, yeah, but yeah. the lens that they had to go to to deny it. And how can you ever feel good about it if that part of you, if it, you know that it is a shameful secret? Well, if you were, you know, against the law, which I'm very proud to be a small part yeah. of, which was, a de- I think it was devastatingly good. And the, the testimony of those elderly men, you know, was oh, so know. powerful, but particularly the guy who said he just got used to being lonely. Yeah. I mean, it was just devastating. And so uh, I, I can't sit here now in 2017 and say, well, of course, I would have just been flagrant, because uh, I wouldn't. I'm by nature a coward. But I think I would, have found, I would have found a way to try and find some measure of personal happiness. I just think I would have, you know, I think I'd probably I'd have been try, tried to be extremely discreet, I suppose. It's interesting that you say you're by nature a coward, because I still know gay men or know of gay men who still haven't come out to their parents you know but you so you say you were never in publicly you did have a coming out experience with your yeah i had an interest my coming out was interesting because you know i sort of dreaded it like everyone does you forget Uh, that dread don't you when you get older yeah i was thinking about it the other day that dread that was there on your shoulders but there just never seems to be a moment does it that's what i remember and then and of course you read about other people's experiences and you think what's gonna happen and then what happened was um i was i was visiting home i was about 20 i think and um my mum one night just asked me she literally said you have a lot of friends who are girls, but they never seem to be your girlfriends. Beat. <laughs> are you not interested in girls? And I went, no. And that was it. And it, that evening was like, it was such a relief. Um, I, what I particularly remember, yeah, I, um, Star Trek was on. Uh, the Next Generation. This is suddenly becoming a very Mark Gertie story. Uh, no, but it was, uh, I'm not a fan of The Next Generation. Oh. But, but it was on. And, uh, and the, what's his name? Will Wheaton, Wesley Crusher. Uh, and we, so we had this sort of conversation. It was just really easy. And then she sort of... My mum made the tea and she said, he's a good-looking lad, isn't he? And I went, yes. Full uh, credit to your mum. It mom. was just marvellous. But... The caveat was, you see, then I said, well, I'd better tell Dad. And she went, no, it'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so rather against my better judgment, we didn't tell him. And then I went back to wherever I was living, uh, Leeds, or I can't remember. And um, I was on the phone to her about a week later and she said, uh, oh, your Uncle Jack came. We had snow. Uh, I told you, Dad. Uh, and she just dropped it in like that. I went, oh. So she told my dad and then told my sister and my brother. And, and I kind of felt... I was very relieved. It's like, oh, I didn't actually have to do it. It was fine. It was taken care of. But did part of you wish you had well, had to do it? Well, what happened was I realised about six months later that basically I had to do it again because it... Wasn't being discussed. No, it had been... It had, been, it had happened and then, it, then the box had been securely closed. So I sort of had to do it again. But had you had time to come round to it? By, yeah, yeah. It and actually, you know, and it was it was great. My, um, uh, They were great. <laughs> and And... You know, it's it's funny how it sort of it does sort of sometimes creep in. You know, I was on the phone to my dad the other day telling him about the monologues, and he said to me, "When I was home a, a couple of months ago, we went out for a tea, and uh, 
he suddenly said something like, um, some of his friends have once said, how, you know, how can you, how can you stand it? And he said, well, he's my son. What do you think I'm going to do? Chuck him out. And it, it really took me by surprise. He's never talked like that. And, and I don't know when those conversations date from, whether they were from many years ago or whether they still occur. I don't know. But, you know, being on the cover of the Radio Times and, and it says Mark Gates talks about being gay and I, I, I don't know how he feels about, you know, telling his friends that I'm on the cover of Radio Times. Uh, because that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but it's, they've been brilliant. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting. My nephew's gay and... Uh, I, I think I knew from when he was about two, to the extent where I kind of forgot about it. And when he finally came out, everyone was so good that I said, I said to my partner, you know, I said, uh, uh, I, I think I might hire an actress to, p- to play a previously unknown auntie who, who takes it badly <laughs> so that you've got something to kick against because that, that could also be good for you, can't it? It's yeah. interesting that you've got a gay nephew because I always think one of the hardest things about growing up as gay is that you don't have older people in your family who are the same. Whereas if you're any other minority, you do have a black parent mm-hmm, or a Jewish mm-hmm. parent. Um, so what's your relationship like with your gay nephew? Well, it's very, very good, but, you know, we um, when he came out... Uh, he and I sort of rushed up to see him and then we went out for a drink, but it was hilarious because of course, it was a bit like, you know, I felt a bit like trying to teach someone the facts of life, like when they knew more than I did. That's oh, really? Oh, because we can get it all off the internet now. Well, I guess so. But also, you know, the the whole world has changed in that sense and uh, the, 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 uh, the sort of weekly gay night in Darlington, which was never a thing when I was his agent. So we just kind of, it was quite nice. I sort of patted him on the head and said, off you go, be careful, you know, that was sort of it. But but it, but it's interesting, I suppose, uh, I hope uh, it's good when he comes down with his boyfriend, I think he has a sort of safe haven for that. And, you know, we, we've we assumed that role, I suppose, of slightly wicked uncles, which is always nice. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting, though, that when you talk about the not knowing, because when I look back on my childhood and teenage years, that's where a lot of the difficulty came from with me, and I think it did with a lot of people, literally having no idea what it meant to be gay. I mean, obviously, you've got all the negative stuff. You're going to die of AIDS and, um, you know, all the horror stories that you heard. But um, we didn't know what it meant, did we? We didn't have... Or just the, the facts of the life. Facts like, of life. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. No, absolutely. No, I mean, it was all... I mean, I struggle to remember now, but I've got... I did. I've written an introduction to the to queers as a as a, the script, and I was sort of trying to think of little things I could piece together. I mean, I can remember the play for today, the, all the play for today's, which had anything vaguely gay in them, or anything, or or, or going through the Brian Mills catalogue to the men's underwear. Yeah. Thing. That's all we added those days. Everybody but, I've yeah, interviewed has yeah. said looking at um, on the underwear catalogues. We I were mean, so desperate. We were thirsty. But uh, <laughs> but then but what's interesting about that is you get. Those things are very, very vivid and both positive and negative. You remember those flashes of things. My big one was, um, I mean, I think I knew from when I was about four, I remember having uh, massive crushes on on men, uh, Stuart Damon off The Champions and the dark one off Follyfoot. And, <laughs> I can still remember oh, exactly yeah. who they were. Um, and... Uh, if you you'll see, I have a very good taste. Uh, and, um, <laughs> I'll Google them afterwards. Don't and a, a friend of my dad, work friend of my dad's, I was I, I really fancy, but I didn't know what it meant. I just had sort of confused feelings in my tummy. And then later on, you know, there were just sort of there were flashes of things that people on telly you'd feel the same way. Something slightly wrong again. Maybe something slightly queer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an episode of the Tomorrow People called The Blue and the Green. Um, it's it's a terrible series, but I love it. It's so bad. But in this story, this there's this boy being bullied at school for being different, uh, and he's beautiful, and he's sort of aloof and indifferent to the bullying. And he turns out he's sort of like an alien. Uh, and I'm I can see it now. I just I just wanted to watch him forever. I couldn't, I didn't know what it was, but it was like I just I could feel the hair prickling on the back of my neck and just like I. There's something magic about this. And interestingly, uh, a few years later, there was a great ITV series called Kids about a care home. 
And there's, oh, yeah. there's a particular episode called Michael and Liam uh, about this boy who makes best friends with a gay boy. And the, the end of part one, I can never forget it, and it's the same actor. He goes, I'm Liam, I'm tart with a golden heart, end of part one, and my heart started pounding. And then he's in the Box of Delights as the waterfall sprite. He's a producer now. But it's funny, you know, I, I saw something in him when I was, when I was about seven. He really registered and really, really made registered, an yeah. And so those moments and those little fragments of things were kind of what you assembled into, I suppose, what you thought you were. But trying to then translate that into, well, how will I live my life is yeah. a very different thing. And also trying to give that, that sense of identity that you're gradually piecing together um, and guessing at a lot of stuff. You've also got to defend the scraps of positive stuff that you get from the barrage of negativity. I mean, you've mentioned the word puff was the common one when you were growing up in County Durham mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s. Actually, when I was growing up in Bolton in the 80s, it was... Let's just say the 70s. <laughs> oh, it's four. Late no, yeah. 60s. Yeah. <laughs> when I was growing up in Bolton in the late 70s, I'll, <laughs> I'll join you there, and 80s, um, it was queer and puff, actually. But we did hear these words a lot, didn't we? And you know, how do, so you would feel excited and all that when you fancied, when you had crushes on guys on TV, but how did you feel when you heard words like puff and understood that even if they weren't being applied to you, they were, you know, relevant to you? Frightened. I remember that. I remember the, you know, it was, it was used so liberally, you know, and I suppose the way that gay is now in a pejorative way. It was used like, it, they'd, people would sling it around all the time, not necessarily just at like an effeminate boy at school or someone who was a bit different. It would just be, oh, you fucking puff. It, or it was a puffy thing to do if you had a slightly different voice or if you were good at art, you know. It's, it's like, it's... it's Such a, basic things, yeah, aren't so they, basic, as well? you know. Um, if you were good at art yeah. or you weren't good at football. Yeah, yeah. And, and you so, would basically puff. Yeah. And so it's sort of, that's interesting that it's not, if you challenged them and said, you know, is that specific, if that, are you saying that to that person because you think they actually suck cock, then they'd probably be a bit shocked. But at the time, it was just, it just meant a sort of general... Some of it is about puffiness. gender, isn't it? Yeah, it's about yeah. traditional gender roles. Yeah, well, very, I mean, particularly where we come from. Yeah. You know, and you can forget that. And when I go home, I think, well, this is, you know, a lot of this has not changed much at all. And um, I can imagine the pressure in that sort of environment still to... To conform. But um, for you, your experience, part of it was about not conforming to what people expected of a man or a male child at the time. I suppose so. I mean, not, not you know, I wasn't like a, a rebel. I mean, what I, again, doing, doing this series, what I've learned and, and become so impressed by is, is the, the people who've come before who really were amazingly brazen. There's one of the police reports, which is from the Caravan Club, and it's the, the police report has written this wonderful sort of... You can read it in a policeman's voice, a sort of, you know, I was proceeding towards the West End where they saw an effeminate-looking man, that sort of thing. And when they arrest this <laughs> man, he says, he says uh, us girls have got to stick together. Things, it's marvellous. <laughs> and you can hear it calling through the years, you know, yeah. the same sort of voice. But um, I, uh, when we did Boys in the Band last year, uh, it was a very moving experience talking to lots of people who'd seen it first time around and it completely changed their lives. In so many, there's one guy who's too young to see it, but he bought it from Samuel French and read it under the covers when he was like 16 or something. And particularly, I remember one night there were two guys, one in his 70s, one in his 80s, and one of the older one was an ex headmaster who had lived a completely closeted life and had only now really had the courage to sort of slightly expand his horizons. The other guy. His partner of 55 years had recently died. They met in the Korean War, and he said to me, you know, a lot of people say it was really hard. We just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> and it was like the two sides of this amazing experience. Again, you, you mustn't think that the past is all one way, because it absolutely isn't. And within that, there are extraordinarily brave people who genuinely... And I think... A friend of mine was talking to me the other day about um, a bus conductor, where he was from, who just wore like makeup and heels and 
he would just be on the bus every day. It's amazing. And, that in, kind and, of bravery, and he, wore, he wore them down. He just wore them down until everyone kind of loved him. Now, who knows? When push comes to shove, if he'd accidentally brushed against someone who apparently liked him, they might have beaten the shit out of him. Yeah. Who knows? But it's that sort of thing which is incredibly impressive. And uh, when you look back at how repressive things were, that to stand up like that is, is really amazing. In terms of your past, you've mentioned already um, aliens on TV, and I know that Doctor Who was a big um, comfort to you in your escape when you were growing up, and time travel in general. Um, was it just the idea of escape, or were you attracted to the difference of aliens? Was it Doctor Who's asexuality? Was it the Nobody fact that he was so Matt, accepting? I mean, the fact that Doctor Who's always had such a huge gay following is is just... It's, it's sort of, to me, like the magic of the programme itself. You can't quite put your finger on what it is, but there's something there, there's something magical in the format, there's something magical about the show. And I think you can you could list a lot of reasons why there is appeal to, to gay people there, but I, I don't know if you can really work it out. It might be something to do with the fact, and this is what's wonderful about the character of he or she, uh, that, that they are different to virtually every other hero. That they are, you know, they're using the doctor's using his wits and his and his charm and his funniness and his oddness. But definitely, the escape was a big thing. I used to, I used to, you know, dream the TARDIS would just turn up at the end of our street and take me away. Well, it's funny because from what you've said, it, you know, it wasn't that unhappy your childhood. No, not at all. I had a very happy childhood. But, it but was, you but still wanted to be taken away by the TARDIS. I wanted to go because it's about that desire to to have. Something happened to you, isn't it? Which I think is what that's what childhood stories are of. You still, you know, adventure. It's adventure, yeah. And, it, and whether it's five go to Kirin Island or five go to Mars, it's certainly that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's still the same instinct, isn't it, to 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 go and have an adventure of some kind? But I think I do think one thing I could say specifically. I think the appeal of the TARDIS always is that you can take your home with you. Like, it's like like a gypsy caravan. I suppose that's what it is. You can go on these adventures, but you're, if you get back there, you're safe. And I think that was a big part of it. Always has been for me. Oh, Excuse the doorbell's me. ringing. Excuse Should we have a little pause? Let's have a pause. Coming up next... I remember my friend showing me his cock and I showed him, but, but the, unfortunately he then didn't sort of... Do anything with do it. it. Yeah. So I think maybe if 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 I'd had one of the, you know, I remember years ago a friend of mine who was in the Sea Scouts who was when he was about about thirteen, he was just regularly being blown off by by a fifteen year old. And you go school. and you go, What? Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. Now, let's get back to Mark. So you've talked about being aware of your difference and aware of your gayness from really early on. You mentioned tantalisingly an afternoon of denial. <laughs> but um, but you did, am I right in thinking you did have a girlfriend? Yes, but she she um, assumed I was very gay. I remember when we, when we got together, she just thought I was having this marvellous secret life, which I wish I was having, <laughs> which I absolutely wasn't. It's funny how this... I think if you, if, you, if you adopt a certain air of mystique, people will believe anything. You can project imagine. anything into yeah. that. Um, so when I was in sixth form, I was very... Uh, I was kind of, you know, in that way, you're, you're very into, like, um, creating a persona, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, had a, I had a badge that said, gentleness is strength. You, do, you think about the, the person you want to be <laughs> and just, what people yes, think. Yes, absolutely. But also you're... You, cre you create yeah. your... You can see it. When you, when you see, like, you know, teenagers or late teenagers, that they are absolutely in the process of constructing a persona which they imagine they will be for the rest of their lives or, or that they want to be. So it's totally... I find it incredibly endearing, this, the sort of sincerity, of the incredible sincerity yeah. of it. So this earnest, is, isn't this, it? Yeah, yeah, always so earnest. And... And actually, so humorless, most. 
but, um, <laughs> but were you trying to construct a straight persona then? No, 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 no. I was, I was constructing a, a, a queer persona. Definitely, I had a, I had a, uh, I made a, a thing on my locker uh, at sixth form, which was, uh, which was the male, you know, symbol with the arrow. Oh yeah. Uh, but pointed downwards. Uh, which now cost us like looked like erectile dysfunction. <laughs> it was sending very much the wrong sing- signal. But I was trying to do. I was trying to send some sort of message, definitely. And even though uh, I had at that stage not not touched a boy. So what was going on with the girlfriend then? If you were already construct, if you were at ease with your queerness and you were constructing this queer persona, how does the girlfriend fit into? Well, I, I kind of fell in love. Uh-huh. And and then, and also, you know, in that I was like sixteen, seventeen. So, you know, you're just doing what you do. I mean, that's to me in a funny kind of way. That's what, in the end, I find a bit sort of suffocating about the um, the kind of commodify commodification. Commodification. What's that word? <laughs> commodification. The commodification of um, of of the acronym and everything is like. You know, the great thing about a word like gay or queer is it sort of covers everything. And the, the moment you start to break it down, it becomes, again, it becomes humorless and also rather suffocating. Well, people say, like, oh, you had a girlfriend. Does that mean you were bisexual? Yes, exactly. I didn't know. I was 16. Who, who the fuck knows? And actually, uh, you know, it's not that I don't... You find, what's the wonderful expression? Love is where it falls. Yeah, and I, th- I think I think there is um, a certain intolerance towards bisexuals yeah. from gay people because for some of them, they went through the motions of having a girlfriend and pretending to like it as a means of showing the world mm. that they were gay. And some of them said they were bisexual first because they couldn't quite. Yeah, yeah. It's a halfway gay. house. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, so they forget or they kind of dismiss genuine bisexuals. But um, and, the, and I have spoken to a lot of gay men who had a girlfriend when they were younger because they were trying to prove to the world that they were straight and they were trying to prove to themselves that they could do it. Mm. And they felt good about themselves when they did do it, so they confused that with enjoyment. Mm. There's lots of different things that can be going on. Yeah. But in your, for, in your case, you just fell in love with a girl. Yeah, and, and, and also I was, I was young and, and I didn't know what was going on. I, do, I mean, you don't, do you? you don't so, know. I mean, that sounds, that's, that sounds a bit like saying it was just a phase. Or, but I think you are, you know, it's ridiculous to try and, it's, it's, like, it's like doing your options at school. <laughs> doing your options, yeah. I've heard that for I a know, while. I know, I'm old. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you think, well, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, and... and just all stabbing in the dark, like, isn't it? Literally, <laughs> <laughs> in some cases. But it was, you know, I was, I mean, I was, oh, I can remember is I, I very much wanted to be this kind of, I don't know, um, Isherwoody, uh, um, brideshead kind of sort of fluid uh, Puff uh, was living this r- sort of rackety life of, of strange sexual indiscretion, and I absolutely wasn't. You know? <laughs> but isn't it amazing that you wanted to be that? Because so many gay men at that age didn't want to be gay, mm-hmm. and you were actually constructing this gay persona and, and actively exploring that. But you know, that's, I've never thought of this before, genuinely never thought of this before, but I wonder if I had had some of those gay experiences which other people infuriatingly had at a much younger age, whether I would have done that. But I, I didn't. You know, so I, did, I hadn't kissed a boy. I hadn't, you know, in that famous thing where you sort of show each other your parts, oh, yeah, yeah, th- yeah. Th- there's usually a payoff. I didn't have that. You know, so, I remember I remember my friend showing me his cock and I showed him, <laughs> but, but the, unfortunately he then didn't sort of... Do t- anything with do it. it. Yeah, so <laughs> I think maybe if, if, if I'd had one of the... You know, I remember years ago, a friend of mine who was in the Sea Scouts, who was, when he was about... About thirteen, he was just regularly being blown off by by a fifteen-year-old. Oh, and you go, school. and you go, what? And that's what, I think that's why you sort of fetishise the notion of boarding school, isn't it? In there? Yeah, maybe that's what Harry Potter's all about. But, uh, but let's get down to nitty gritty then. So, when did you first not so much see a boy's cock properly, but when did you first kiss a man? When did you first start to explore this side of you? Uh, fortnight ago. <laughs> uh, well, then then it happened. I was. Um, uh, I was there was a, a place called Darlington Arts Centre, which is closed now, and was once the the second largest art centre in the country after the Barbican. Amazing place, where I used to go and do plays with my friends, and it was we all used to hang out there. And um, one day, this boy 
came running through part of some youth theatre group or something, and he just put his arms around me and kissed me uh, just on the way out. And it was like, ooh. And then there were lots of things which nearly happened, as it were. Or, you know, it turns out now, like, I, these three of my friends at school were subsequently gay, but none of us did anything about it. Oh, my God. But I don't think we, I think we actually, none of us were any of the other's type. I'm sure that would have made a difference. But there was, I mean... Yeah, but sometimes when you're a teenager, you're just so desperate. And yeah, well, I know, I know. But it was, I, I mean, it's its difficult from this this perspective to feel, to know quite... I knew I knew what I was yearning for. I suppose, I suppose this kind of comes back to the escape thing, doesn't it? I sort of wanted some environment where it was possible. One thing I can remember very vividly, and I must have been about um, 17, yes. Uh, so... I was in the lowest sixth, and there was a boy at my school called David Mooring, who was slightly older than me. Um, he, I think he, he was just left, I think. And he was, I really fancied him. And um, then he started to have a relationship with a, the guy, with an older guy in Darlington. Two things I remember. Uh, the older guy who ran the art centre... Um, we just went for a walk and he just sort of said, so do you have a girlfriend? He was Australian. He said, do you have a girlfriend, Mark? And I went, no, not currently. And he said, what about a boyfriend? And I said, not currently. That was my way of sort of saying it. And then David, the, the boy I knew at school, we had a drink one night and it was definitely on, but there was nowhere to go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. And I, that's what I was sort of projecting was like, um, you know, in this imagined world where you could just sort of stumble into a, a, a box room or something. It just wasn't possible. I mean, it probably was. We should have probably just gone to the bushes. But in, I just couldn't imagine that. I'd sort of, you know, I'd miss my bus or something. <laughs> you know, it was that, that was the kind of pressure I felt in a way. It was like, oh, if only it was slightly more magical. Yeah. I think it is, it's easier for straight kids, isn't it? Because they can take a boyfriend or a girlfriend home. I mean, the picture you're painting is that it's quite, it was quite accepted and everything, but you would have had to kiss him in private, wouldn't you? Yes, so well, therefore, yes, yes. You, do, you do have to go somewhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is, it's quite a complicated thing. It's not just an yeah. innocent discovery of our sexuality. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. And that, I don't know... Uh, that feels like it's changed a lot, but then I yeah. think if you went, if you, if you, you know, if you tried to kiss someone in a bush shelter in Darlington today, you might have trouble. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not like it's become some sort of gay utopia. Well, then it is. It's interesting as well thinking about these early experiences because I'm just revisiting some of mine, and there's excitement there. Getting and, horny, yeah. and getting horny. <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting horny when I was a teenager. I remember all that, but there's the fear there as well, isn't there? First of all, you have to kind of test the water. Are they are they, are they like me? Mm. Um, how will they react? And you know. What if somebody catches us? And some people have that thing, being slightly repulsed um, by it in themselves. You know, it's so kind of complicated, isn't it, when you start to explore your sexuality? Yes. Or it was in our day. No, but it is. And of course it is. And people are complicated. So, you know, what you imagine is people, so many people are just, they'll be at ease with it. And you imagine everything has kind of come on, and it has come on a long way, but equally it feels like, you know, I feel personally in the, the way the world is at the moment, that uh, democracy is like a, a tiny, fragile scab floating on a sea of pus, <laughs> you know? It's so... It yeah. could just sink like that and... and, and well, uh, it is you know, tiny compared to the rest. When you think about us in the West, and, you know, we're having problems in places like the US, but actually compared to the rest of the world, mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's hundreds of millions of people who live in countries where it's still illegal. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that about you know, against the law, the, 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 the character I play in that, he is, you know, he's saying, you, you broke the law, this is what has to happen. Uh, he's not horrible, but he's just matter-of-factly saying we, you'll have electroshock therapy or, or yeah. aversion therapy. Now, that is mm. happening now yeah. as we speak. Yeah, yeah. And in somewhere in the world, that's not even the therapy, it's just torture, yeah. you know? Yeah. And we are so privileged to be able to even look back on these things and say, Jesus, wasn't that incredible to believe it was only 50 years ago? Um, and we're, we're remarking on how weird it was to remember that we were frightened when we had our yeah, first yeah. kiss with a yeah, man. Yeah. Um, of course we were. Yeah. You know, when you think about the worlds that we grew up in, of course we were. Yeah. So, right, so you've told us about 
kissing boys. Just remember something these... else. Can I tell you something? <laughs> yes, I tell us. I literally just remembered this. <gasps> Talking about what you wanted, what you projected. That boy, David, that I didn't sleep with, uh, about a year later was on Channel 4 uh, because he became involved in Michael Clark, the dancer, Dance who I love more than anyone on earth. He's fantastic. He, uh, he, David was some part of his circle and there was a kind of documentary about them and they were all living in this sort of warehouse in East London. And I remember just thinking, but I want that. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly Michael Clark, that's what I particularly want. Yeah. So how did you go about <laughs> achieving that? Did you start going to... So you went to university in Leeds. Did you start going to gay bars? Did you start... After all the struggle of where do we go, presumably you then took it to another level. Well, I... I was, I was, I was a sort of slow, a uh, late bloomer in, in the sense of... I was never very... I was always older than my years. I've always... My mother used to say I had an old soul, you know, and I've always loved history and I kind of... I, could, I was never... I never really got on with, with, the, with, like, the bar scene. I suppose it's partly because, like, early attempts to go, I found very frightening. Oh, really? Um, it, what, in terms of not being made to feel welcome? Or? No, do you know, in that kind of... I suppose... I've always had a fear of getting in trouble... Uh, a sort of Hitchcock like fear of getting in bother and and it has it has definitely held me back it's sort of, as I say I'm a natural coward it, it has held me back so that some some instances you, you'll read our oh, friends people who went to their first gay pub and and the sort of darkness and the vague sense of threat is what the appeal was whereas I, I just find it very frightening so I remember going in gay pubs and of course they had blacked out windows. Yeah, you pick up on that tense atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. That but of course there is an excitement because it's slightly forbidden or very forbidden. But at the same time you think, I, I don't think I'm going to meet the, this boy I, I, I've dreamed about in this environment. Yeah. Well, especially so, if the right milieu for you is escaping into fantasy and you're a, you were a cerebral person and do you know what I mean? You, whether, whether or not you're gay, you're not going to be a good fit in loud bars, clubs with, yeah. you know... Drunk people. Yeah. Um, also, I was and... I was wearing I was wearing three piece tweed suits when I was twenty two, like a stupid prick. And, <laughs> and uh, so, whereas I that should have been just persona yeah, again. Yeah, I should have just been enjoying myself. So there was that. But I remember, I mean, what kind of really happened was um, after after that boy uh, they kissed me in the in the art center, and I, I went back to his house a few weeks later, and we had sex, and that was it. And he was like, I remember him saying. Um, uh, you, you've done this before, haven't you? And I, and I went, no. I, really, I think I think I just thought about it for so long. I was actually, I felt quite practised. <laughs> he was absolutely wouldn't believe it. it was my first time. He wouldn't believe it. I remember that. He was called Michael. Was it his um, first time? No. No. Uh, I remember that. I obviously very well that first time. But in that strange way, you you kind of think the world's going to shift on its axis yeah, and everything will be different. And you just go, oh. And he, I did. I do remember feeling slightly outside of myself in that way because you, because I had thought about it so much. He was going, Jesus, this is oh look, it's happening. And then after that, I suppose, quite rapid succession. Um, uh, just a few more encounters, and then when I was at college, I I had my sort of first proper boyfriend, and that was a, uh, that was. I mean, I was you know trying to push it towards um, the fantasy I was hoping for. That was pretty close because he was a. Uh, he was a year older than me, and um, uh, there was a girl in my year um, who really fancied him. He was a very handsome man called James, and he uh, in his his room his rooms in college. It sounds like Oxbridge. It wasn't in his room in college. <laughs> he had he'd made his own four post bed. He had a gramophone. Oh my God! What were you doing in Leeds? You guys no, no, this are four posters and tweets. This is a Breton Hall. It was a drama, a terrible drama college. And anyway, and and I got to know him uh, through through this girl. And um, and he he asked me back to his room one afternoon, and he he made me a cup of Earl Grey. Everything was perfect. <laughs> and uh, put on a tape of Gregorian chanting. And um, and he said he was going. Oh, I don't know. I'd love I'd love to pick your brains. He said because. Uh, there's a girl back home. I'm sort of, you know, who's I've been seeing for a long time, and and then there's this other girl who's our mutual friend, and and, he, and then he said, and then there's you, and I suddenly dropped my cup of tea. It was like, 
and then that was that. And he became your first boyfriend? Yeah, sort of. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's, the dis- there's often the discovery of sex and there's... Well, I say often, there's always the discovery of sex and there's always the discovery of love. But I do quite often think with gay people more than straight people, these are separate things. And um, it sounds with you that, that that was the same thing. Well, I was kind of, you know, I was sort of was a hopeless... I was instantly smitten because I kind of invested it with absolutely everything I wanted to do. And, of course, it... And then you bagged yeah. him. I did, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't, you know, it wasn't It wasn't a happy time, really. I was kind of hopelessly devoted, like Sandy. Uh, in Greece. Tell me about uh, it, stud. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it didn't really work out very well. But it was kind of, um, you know, and then, and then I suppose I just kind of, in my limited way, sort of, saw a few people. But I was definitely... I was definitely hidebound by not being interested in in the scene per se, and and I look back now and think, I mean, if if I if 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 anyone who aged like twenty two asked me for advice now, I just say, go out while your skin is tight, <laughs> enjoy yourself for Christ's sake, don't 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 project, don't don't be old before you before you are because it'll it'll get to you very quickly. So I think I definitely limited myself, but it was kind of, I mean, I was I was. I was just not into that. And, and but, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of gay men um, who, you know, quite, who lament the kind of the passing of the glory days of the gay scene and, and venues closing down. And often what is blamed for this is the rise of online dating, etc. Actually, you're somebody who didn't quite, wasn't at your best on the glory days of the scene. And actually, am I right in thinking that you met your other half, your husband, Ian, online? Yes. So, you know, you tell it, your story is completely different. It, you know, it's the, almost the counterpoint to... Yeah, I mean, I did... Um, I, I, I got better at it and... and, and have by, to quickly point that by out. By the mid-90s, <laughs> I was... I went out a lot, you know. But the, the weird thing is, you know, you... you um, it's, I think a version of this conversation has always been had, hasn't it? It's like, oh, you know, record, records are going to destroy live music or, yeah, you know, yeah. motor cars are going to destroy everything. It's, there's always a version of this happening. So, I mean, what, what, we, what wouldn't we have given to be able to, to pick up a phone and, and, and find oh, someone who lived 500 yards away rather than trolling down and spending a, a lonely evening in a bar with nursing a bottle of... Um, when you've only got a few, yeah. yeah, you've only got a few to choose from who may or may not be your type, and you yeah. may or may not be their type. So, so there's, you know, but you, for everything you gain, obviously you lose something, and that sense of community. And it's funny though, we went out the other night, and we went to the yard, which I've been to for years, where I had my thirtieth birthday. Um, I like the yard. Year, year before last, and uh, and uh, it was heaving. And every time I actually go out to a gay pub, it seems to be very full. And yet, every day, more and more of them go. So, it, it's it's the it's the same old thing. You lose something, you gain something. The the the, the possibility for someone growing up gay now and finding their heart's desire around the corner, as I did with with Ian. You know, um, you know. Although when we met, it was like it was like it was so early on. It was like. Writing a note for Santa and burning it up the chimney. It, it was. So, what website was it? It was gay.com. So, was that before gaydar? It was before gay the dot. internet. <laughs> uh, I before gaydar. Gay yes, before gaydar, yeah. Ah. Yeah. yeah. So, in those days, was there still kind of squeamishness and stigma attached to Definitely. meeting somebody online? We didn't tell our, uh, our families. We said we met at a party, which was sort of true. <laughs> oh, you had your own little party. We had our own little party. Um, we didn't tell them until until the day we got married. That's when they found out in the, in the speech. And I remember my sister looking down the table like that to me, going, "Oh!" <laughs> but definitely, we definitely felt that then. And now, of course, it's it's more than commonplace. It's like it's the norm. It's, well, it's not just it's not just them. It's like. Why the fuck wouldn't you? Yeah, I know. When, Straight people only meet When you was like, well, for God's sake, you want to find someone you actually like. Then somebody yeah. who just happens yeah. to be in the same bar. Yeah. I mean, it's so blatantly obvious yeah. that that's what you would do. Having said that, you know, it's rather nice to think that people do just still meet through work or accidentally or, you know, those things obviously still happen and I hope they continue to for the future of the race. But it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's about using the technology sensibly, isn't it? It's like, this is, this, makes total sense. Yeah, but also I think there is an element of slut-shaming going on because I know gay men who've met 
in saunas. I know one gay couple who met in a threesome. Actually, they're not together anymore. But there's so many gay men who have to invent other alternative stories that they tell people about how they're met because the kind of highly sexed, sexualized element of our culture is frowned upon, not just by the straight world, but by sometimes you get this gay-on-gay shaming. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we didn't didn't meet in a sort of Lonely Hearts uh, chat room. I'm assuming not, but I'm just being <laughs> classy by not asking. But that's what you're exactly right. It's like even even within that, it's like well, we you know we, it wasn't like a it wasn't like placing an advert. No, but you know yeah. you have to. We have we're made to feel ashamed of that, aren't we? Or embarrassed. Um, and actually, why should we? It's interesting that... Do you remember when George Michael was... This is going off on a tangent slightly, but when George Michael was caught cruising on Hampstead Heath and he said to the journalist, um, this is our culture, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of gay men said, cruising isn't our culture, cruising isn't our culture. I think it's undeniable that hooker paps and online dating services um, are our culture and there is definitely a higher rate of casual sex amongst gay men, yet we still can be quite squeamish talking about it. I think it's great that you've said that that's how you met. Well, it's, it, yeah, I think it's important too, because it's, but it, it's, at the same time, it's like you look, look at the whole picture. It, to me, it's all a different part of the same problem, which is like, especially in the modern world, he said, sounding like his granddad, uh, is that, there's no room for nuance. You know, it's like, it's so fucking black and white. It's like, well, it is a part of our culture. It's not exclusively, and not everybody has to identify like that. But if you say it, there is a mob to tell you, no, you are wrong. Shut up. Shut the fuck up. Don't tell me that that's my culture. You go, I wasn't. I was, but it's too late now. It's out there. It's got out like a like a ghost, doesn't it? And uh, and there's always someone who will who will come and, and tell you you're very wrong about that. Whereas, in fact, like everything, it's much more grey. And so you can perfectly, correctly say that is a huge part of gay culture, always has been, and particularly when it was very, very underground. And, in fact, uh, dating apps are a, basically a sort of um, a modern manifestation of what we've always done. Yeah. And it is yeah. a huge and important part, and as... Uh, Matthew Baldwin's uh, um, monologue in, in Queers demonstrates um, some people think it was never the same after the 1967 because it stopped being fun and the element of risk and everything during the war and all that darkness, it was a huge part of it and to this day uh, I think this is a very cogent argument that there might be partly the extremities of some elements of, of, of gay sex these days is a sort of subconscious reaction to the fact that so much has been gained. So if we can get married, we can have children, we can be like everyone else. So we should be, some people so think, because of the expectation. We we... So we, and then so somehow a lot of people want to be still other. They want yeah. to be the outlaw. Because we have that is something you lose. You do lose something. Because because that was, you know, well, everything we've talked about in terms of the of the fear and the and the shame and and potential violence and bullying, but also there's a there's, it's like being in a gang, and there's a you know there's a there's a clubby element to it, and and that you know a certain liquidity of the eye across across an escalator or something like that it makes your heart pound and that's something magical and so but it, it's it's within a massive complicated context and that that to me is is the enemy these days is that. You, you know, if you if you if you dare to get the acronym wrong, there there is someone to police it with with, oh, with know, sort of sort of almost. Well, like, we all make mistakes, don't well, we? Well, of course, like... you're not allowed to. You I know. know, and well, it, and it changes. It's like a password. It changes every week, yeah. so you don't know where you are anyway. Well, and it's, I think there is a there is a tradition. There is a sense of um, a history of if you're a member of an underrepresented minority. Everybody else in that minority is so sensitive about bad representation, yeah. not reflecting them. And I do get that. I totally get that. Yeah. But it is, it is less of an issue these days mm-hmm. when there's more representation. But there do seem to be lots of gays ready to, you know... Pounce. Pounce, yeah. throw shade, you know, yeah. slut shame, whatever. And... Um, but interestingly, you talk about, you know, th- what we've gained and that we can get married now, so it's easier to integrate and some people think we should. Um, 
and assimilate rather. Um, you am I right in thinking you had a civil partnership with your partner yeah. Ian? in 2008. Yes. So have you upgraded that to marriage since? We're upgrading next year for our fucking hell, 10th anniversary. Congratulations! Yeah. Yes, yes. We, well, it's only because the seating's better and we get free white wine. <laughs> so what does um, marriage, what does marriage mean to you then? What, why, why are you upgrading it? Why isn't, because talking about difference and, you know, civil partnerships, some people still think they were better because they were other and different to marriage. Mm but you're going for equal marriage, which is the same. Why is that important to you? Well, it's, it's two things, really. I mean, we're, we're doing it for the, for the anniversary uh, because we can, uh, but it's equality, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. That's, you know, uh, again, back to the monologues, uh, you know, that March, the 1994 um, thing outside Parliament, I was there that night, as was ah. Michael, the writer, and I remember I was with Simon Gage, and I love when, Simon Gage. When it started to kick off, I remember Simon lying down the road, and I think I said, I'm going to go home now. <laughs> a natural coward, you see. But it is, I was, you know, I was very struck when, when Michael um, wrote that one, pitched that idea to me that the what he's, what the character says is like, you just, of course, you just, of course, they're going to say yes. Why would they not? It's not very long ago, and and there are so many things like this where. You argue with people and go, do you know that in 18 months' time, this will look like you're defending the slave trade? This will look ridiculous. And it does. Well, look at Angela Merkel. I mean, she's yeah. going to be so embarrassed yeah. in the future that she voted against equal marriage. But you have, to, you have to argue that and you have to get through it. And then all we were talking about was equality. And that, to me, is the most extraordinary thing. You're not saying special privilege. You're not arguing. You're literally just saying, can we be the same as everyone else, please? And the fact that that was an issue as short a time ago as that, and of course, to this day, in some countries and across the world, I mean, that's my that's what really gets me very worked up these days, is um, that we we are losing ourselves sometimes in, 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 in tiny debates about personal pronouns when the world is on fire and, and ISIS is, is throwing people off buildings for being gay and, and they're opening fucking concentration camps in Chechnya. You know, we should be so lucky. We should wake up. And it's not that these things cannot be talked about and shouldn't be talked about, but for God's sake, we've got we've to help each other out. That's what I think we've... As, and it is an inevitable result of, of success is that you are, you are bound together in adversity with a lot of strange bedfellows. And the more success you have, the more you start to fall out within it. And then it becomes yeah. like the people's front of Judea. And people splinter off and start having rows about, about themselves as opposed to the bigger picture. And the picture has never been bigger, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I think in our lifetime, this is as serious as it's ever got. The world is darkening around us, and, and and we've got to wake up because these privileges they could uh, be taken away. They, they go like that, which is why actually um, every every gay man who is visibly out in the media, in the public eye, even in places like the UK where we do have much greater acceptance, with um, news travelling on the internet all around the world, it's still really important. Even when you get married next year, that will be a political act. You know, when it is reported, um, it will be a political act. And well, an amazing thing happened. I mean, it sounds like a cliche. But, uh, we, we got married, we had our civil partnership at uh, Middle Temple, um, where Twelfth Night was first performed. Uh, but also, uh, under a portrait of Edward Carson, uh, the great uh, advocate, and also the man who prosecuted Oscar Wilde. And when I told them that civil partnerships were happening in this room, uh, they didn't know. And I thought, this is, the, this is exquisite irony. And when I did my speech, I flick the V's to him. It's like, this, this, is, this is a late revenge, but it is a revenge. And it is a, it's an amazing thing to think this can happen in front of this man who stands for everything we, we hopefully have, have put behind us. Mark Gertis, on that note, thank you very much and good luck with your wedding next year. Thanks, Pet. <laughs> what are you getting me? <laughs> we'll talk about that when we turn this off. <laughs> Mark Gate is there, talking with me at his home in North London earlier this month. 
These podcasts are sponsored by The Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. Check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to let you know who my next special guest is. For now, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Attitude Heroes. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 